0: This is the current federal tax developments for the week of July 18th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this week we're going to be looking at a few things that have happened in the current week in the area of federal taxes. Beginning with a discussion here of Congress looking at the reconciliation bill and discovering that things kind of fell apart on it. So, we have a little issue there. We'll talk a little bit about why things fell apart, what happened, and what may be likely to happen the rest of the year. We'll go and look at a few cases this week. First, we're going to have a taxpayer who loses a charitable contribution deduction, both due to his failure to give the entire interest to the charity and the fact that the taxpayers lack the proper acknowledgement for a donation to a donor-advised fund. This is another one of those strict compliance with statutory rules for donation problems that we've seen a number of cases relate to in the past few weeks. It's been an interesting run. We're also are going to have a case where a taxpayer attempted to argue that the statute of limitations on collections should have expired on his account because of the fact that the offers he submitted should have been so clearly not Processable or not something the IRS should reject, that it should, you know, the the time the IRS processed them shouldn't count against him. Needless to say, the taxpayer didn't win on that one, but we'll talk about that one. And finally, we're going to talk about a reasonable cause for penalty relief, and this is a failure to report a $238,000 distribution from retirement plan when a 1099R was sent to the wrong address. So, interesting case that way. Now, let's go ahead and get a little bit of discussion here going on the reconciliation bill. And what's happened so far is talks, as you may have been aware, were going on over the reconciliation bill, mainly talks with Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. If you're not aware of how this is going to work, if it does work, basically reconciliation allows a bill to come to a vote in the Senate or bills that relate to certain budget items, to come to a vote in the Senate without having to get the normal 60-vote majority necessary to bring something to the floor. There are a few special cases. They've been expanded in recent years uh, where a vote can get to the floor, but this one goes way back. You know, this one's been there uh, recognizing that Congress has to deal with the budget, and so you can't have the 60-vote what we Indirectly referred to as the filibuster rule, even though it's technically not the same as the old filibusters, uh, that can't really be holding things up. So we have this reconciliation. Now, as you may be aware, right now the Senate is divided evenly, 50 Democratic senators, 50 Republican senators. With the vice president being a Democrat, that means if all 50 Democrats vote for something and the vice president votes for it, in the case of reconciliation bill, it will go through. But the flip side of that is absent some Republicans being absent for votes. If the Democrats do not have unanimity on their side and everybody agreeing to vote for the bill, then it's going to fall apart when it tries to go to the floor and we try to get a vote. That's why they've been working on this. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and also, on somewhat different issues, Senator Kristen Cinema of Arizona have been objecting to what had been the Build Back Better Act. Now it's just whatever reconciliation gets through. And this point appears to have broken down. But even when we look at why it broke down, it is told the center Manchin specifically says he doesn't want tax items in the bill. Now, he also doesn't want clean energy items in the bill, which is another whole long discussion. But for those of us here, the key issue is the tax items. So assuming he sticks to his guns on that, we wouldn't expect the Build Back Better Act to have major league or Build Back Better Act successor to have major tax provisions contained in it. So even if they do do a deal, probably is going to be less than, you know, significantly less tax items in it than would otherwise be there. Yes, there may be a few in there. There's been a talk about extending the Affordable Care Act subsidy, which apparently Senator Manchin has signed off on. So we would have extending what we had the rule last year, this year would extend in the future. Uh, So we have various items like that. So there could be some minor tax issues. But probably more in line with what we saw late last year uh, when we extended the, you know, we we had basically looking at, I should say, certain tax provisions come in at the end that also got rid of the employee retention credit uh, for other than startup businesses for the fourth quarter. And we had quirky little tax provisions in there. Uh, We may see similar things this time, but not the big one. Therefore, at this point, the other bill that may be more significant tax wise is the retirement bill that is still in process, passed the House, is at Senate Finance with apparent support, with support there. Uh, But a different bill somewhat emerged from Senate Finance that would obviously have to go to a conference committee. Now, the other big problem we've got is that we're still looking for a vehicle. To attach the research deduction, research and experimental expenditures will have to be itemized, will have to be amortized, I should say, this year, uh, not directly deducted by a trade or business. That's not been true in the past, but those of you who don't remember this, in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017, this was added as a revenue raiser now I realize its point was to raise revenue not really the point was it was supposed to be repealed in fact it was scheduled to be repealed as part of the original Build Back Better Act but when that stalled the repeal stalled and now we're in the problem time of the year of trying to find a vehicle to put that on again it appears likely at some point it will get put back to current expensing but likely isn't certain And secondly, it is just as possible that it will wait till next year if we get it and then be retroactive because Congress does things like that. So that's probably the big thing people are keeping their eyes on right now. The retirement bill is also something people are watching, but probably not as closely at this point since a lot of that would be a delayed effective. The research thing is probably the big deal. Now, the reconciliation bill, if you remember back to when repeal and replace went bust, that was the last time we had a major reconciliation bill blow up, where you were in a position where the party in power had the House, Senate, and the White House in control, and they had a reconciliation bill, you know, they were trying to use to get through one of their key policy objectives, and it blew up. At that time, you may remember there was a long discussion going on as we get closer to September 30. The theory is that the reconciliation bill has to go through by september 30 or it's irrelevant because we've basically gotten rid of that fiscal year for the federal government so it's kind of hard to deal with the budget items for the fiscal year ended september 30 of 2022 when we're in october of 2022 now at that time there was some discussion that well maybe that's not absolute and maybe you could still use the old reconciliation bill uh continuously Again, that kind of fell off. And that, you know, it didn't go forward that way, largely because it became very clear they couldn't get the votes, however long they waited. What that does mean, though, is that if we're going to see reconciliation, it's likely going to be by September 30. Now, there is a chance if it's closed at that point, but hasn't gone forward, that we could see the party switch on the view of whether you can go beyond September 30 or not. <laughs> Obviously, this time the Republicans will be the ones saying, no, 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 no way go past September 30. And the Democrats who were, no, 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 can't go back September 30 back in 2017 when we had the, you know, the blow up of repeal and replace, who will suddenly be saying, oh, yeah, yeah, it can. And they'll just be using the arguments the other side did the last time. Again, last time that didn't come to a head because I think, uh, you know, at that point, Mitch McConnell decided this was a nightmare. He just wanted to end because it wasn't working. And I have a feeling Schumer may feel the same way about this if nothing happens. But keep your eye on it. My guess is, though, if I had to put bets right now and no guarantees on this, but I would see the most likely result. It was we'll see no tax bills until after the election. So I think that'll probably be and maybe not even until the next Congress. So we'll just need to keep our eye on that. What's going to happen now after if they don't get it done in the next couple of weeks by early August, they'll be on their August recess. They'll come back for very, very quick time just to do things in September they have to do and then go out on the campaign trail. So because of that, and because we know they're going to be campaigning, which is the really big thing for the most of them right now. You're probably not going to see anything happen until after the election. The other problem is the closer you are to the election, the more likely it is your opponent's going to take whatever vote you make and try to weaponize it on you. So, again, unlikely to see a lot of activity before then. Next up is the case of Kiefer versus United States, a United States District Court case from the Northern District of Texas. This is case number 3, colon, 20, CV, 00836. It was decided on July 6th. Now, this is a case of a taxpayer owned an interest in a partnership. The partnership was getting ready to sell its major asset. It ran a hotel. So it has this hotel. It's got an offer on the table. It's negotiating. We're not quite totally yet locked up on the deal, but we're getting close to it. So at this point, the taxpayer decides, well, he wants to make a contribution to a donor advised fund of this effectively, what's soon to be a rather big gain and going out eventually distribution of cash. Uh, He wants it to go in as a charitable deduction. Now, of course, there are advantages to doing that because if you do donate appreciated property, you know, rather than waiting for the sale, getting the cash and donating the cash, you get a deduction if the, you know, if the sale of that asset would generate capital gain. And you've held it for, and the gain would be long term, so you've held it for over a year. You'll be able to claim a full deduction for the fair market value up to the standard 30% of AGI limitation. You know, those sorts of rules, but we'll be able to claim that deduction on the return. While if you recognize the gain, that's going to come into income and then you would get, dist- you know, make a cash contribution. You would get the cash to reduce that. But if you just give it before the gains recognize, you get the deduction without having the recognition. So the taxpayer was attempting to do that. Now, he donated a four percent interest in the partnership to a donor advised fund. That will also become significant in this case that this is a donor advised fund. But he gave that to it. However, interestingly enough, he held back an interest. And this became one of those odd things that come into this. Uh, Bottom line was they agreed that, in essence, that the donor would get to keep his share of the tax, you know, the cash flow from operating the hotel up through the date of sale, effectively, the cash that was in there that hadn't yet been distributed. And the basically the donor advise fund would only get to keep the cash that's coming off of the sale. Now, this was documented in the in his, in the taxpayer's appraisal on this and, you know, was discussed, it's in there. Now, that's interesting because of course that's you know, it becomes a question of, did you really give the entire proceeds? We'll see how that comes into play. Did we give the entire interest, which, you know, is going to come into play here. He also got two separate documents that he took to be the, you know, a basically his donor advice fund contemporaneous written acknowledgement. One of the documents he got before the sale actually closed and before he actually made the contribution. That was his donor advised fund packet that had various descriptions of what the terms and conditions and things were going to be. This, though, was before he made the contribution and before he was required to make the contribution. He wasn't committed at this point to making the contribution. He also got then, after the donation took place, he got a letter from the donor Advise fund, you know, saying yes, thank you for your donation of this interest in the partnership to this, to, to our entity, right, to our organization, and you know, basically, you know, thank you for that. No goods or services were received in extent, you know, in exchange for this, etc. Fairly standard acknowledgement. Now we get into some of our funds with these. Now he claims that. First thing is, those two documents were his contemporaneous written acknowledgement. And then number two, he claims as well, he says, that he did not basically only donate a partial interest. Now, let's talk about why each of these is significant, because each one does have a problem. The IRS argued first that this thing shouldn't count because they, they said, look, this was an anticipatory assignment of income. Now, you can't do that, in essence. I can't go ahead and take a done deal and right at the last second substitute the charity for me just before the check comes in. That cannot be done, right? That's called anticipatory assignment of income. And I also, though, have an issue there if I don't give the entire interest in a case like that. That that also could be considered that I was giving only, I was essentially just assigning the income, the specific item of income, and not other things. I was giving a partial transfer and partial interest don't count. So we have a problem here. You know, can we run into this? Well, the IRS said, look, this was so close to being done, it was virtually a done deal that it should just automatically be considered to be an anticipatory assignment of income. And the IRS was looking to a case called Ferguson that came out of the Ninth Circuit, where the Ninth Circuit kind of uniquely ruled that you could have an anticipatory assignment of income, even if there was not yet a legal obligation of the parties to complete the transaction, as long as it was effectively, virtually certain to move forward, right? Most other cases have only done it when basically there was, you know, in essence, the parties were legally bound to complete the transaction, which was not the case here. Now, the court did not decide to follow the IRS on that rule. They said, look, there," but they, they will follow a different issue. The court looked at a case called Humicid v. Commissioner, Humicid Co. v. Commissioner, which is a 1964 tax court case. And it says there is a, uh, basically, you are giving an anticipatory assignment of a gain. If you give the, you know, you know if the donor, you do not have one, is what I should say. You can avoid anticipatory, anticipatory assignment of income from a gain. I'll get the words out. As long as you give away the property, absolutely, and parts with the title completely, and you do so before the property gives rise to income by way of a sale. Now, the IRS was saying he actually violated both. But the court first said, did he give it away before the property gives rise to income by way of a sale? And they said, well, what he gave away... He definitely did before there was any binding commitment. The court specifically, and this is a Texas District Court, an appeal would have gone to the Fifth Circuit if they specifically decided not to adopt the Ninth Circuit view on this. So, in essence, they're not going to expand this. Now, this does mean that we have slightly, you know, at least... As long as the IRS doesn't appeal this and the Fifth Circuit, let's say, overturn, or the IRS shouldn't say the taxpayer appeals, the IRS would raise this issue on appeal. Uh, and the Fifth Circuit could decide, yep, we're going to follow the Ninth. But right now, you know, we have a tight, a tight rule in the Ninth Circuit. Not clear if that rule will apply anywhere else. This court decided not to go there, but it really didn't help the taxpayer. Because the second issue was, did the taxpayer get give away the entire interest and they actually use a quote from an old court case talking about the fact that you know in, in rejecting the ninth circuit they, they they said it doesn't matter really how ripe the fruit is on the tree that is the gain if you give away you know the tree and the fruit right and they said in this case you know they're saying it, it's super ripe it's just ready for the picking. They said, yeah, but it's not a commitment yet, so you can't go. You know, it's not a problem as long as he gave away the entire interest. But now we get into the problem of did they give away the entire interest? And in this case, they said, no. They, They said, you divided this up. Now, you're saying that somehow you're trying to say it really was a liability. It already was on the books. But they said, no, under the partnership agreement, This is all the cash flow for operation from the hotel is what you get to keep. And you get to keep that. And if the sale doesn't go through, you would still get to keep that, it would appear. So bottom line, you know, it appears what you're doing is you're dividing it out and only giving the charity the cash that flows directly from the gain. And they're saying in this case, you didn't give away the tree. You only gave away the fruit. Having done so, you effectively have done an assignment of income. And that's the problem. You held on to the property, significant chunk of it, and the only thing you gave away was the fruit. So it doesn't matter that the fruit, you know, has not yet been uh, basically harvested. You gave it away, you know, essentially only gave away the fruit if harvested. So kind of that, that didn't count. The, this contribution was not going to work. It was. It's a little bit weird because the taxpayers both arguing that, well, the sale is not absolutely certain to go through when we're arguing against the, you know, on the issue of, you know, what was the sale already a done deal, but then to try to defend this, they have to start arguing, oh, the sale is certain to go through. So it was, it was kind of interesting and the court didn't let them argue both sides in that case. Now, the other problem, they said, look, so that, that would kill the contribution right away anyway. But the court said we still have a different problem and they're going to decide the second issue. And that issue goes to contemporaneous written acknowledgement. And as we're all aware, there are strict rules in Section 170F8 regarding items you must receive to contemporaneously acknowledge a contribution. And one of those, when it's more than $250, you know, the item is, I have to get an acknowledgement from the charity And that acknowledgement has to essentially, you know, give the year what we gave and, you know, indicate if there was any goods or services given in regard to this. Okay, well, we have that, you know, as I said, in September, they got a letter that effectively said that. However, the problem here is if you are dealing with a donor advised fund. Section 170F18 adds on to the CWA requirements that you also must basically have a document that states that the organization, the fund, has exclusive legal control over the assets contributed, and that has to be part of your acknowledgment. Now the taxpayers said, "Well, okay, the donor advised fund packet." that he received before the donation didn't have the magic words that the organization has exclusive legal control of the assets contributed. But they're saying, but it effectively says that. The IRS said those words had to be there. The court agreed with the taxpayer those exact words do not need to be there. But the court had a different problem with this. Because this packet was received Prior to the donation, and prior to the time the taxpayer was required to make the donation, they were not obligated to donate at that point. They said that couldn't be that couldn't be an acknowledgement, right? You acknowledge after the fact. You can't acknowledge, or at least you couldn't acknowledge, at the very most until you were absolutely committed to doing it. Even then, I think you're pushing it to say that it was an acknowledgement. Said so. This obviously is not the acknowledgement. Okay. And they they said, and now we look to the letter. The letter's problem is it made no commentary about the donor advised fund having exclusive legal control over the assets contributed. In fact, it didn't even mention the donor advised fund directly. It's kind of a messy situation. Now, the taxpayers said, yeah, yeah, but if you go back and take our packet, you know, you combine those two, we've got everything. And, you know, they, they called up, they and the IRS both looked at cases where the question had become, could a deed in a conservation easement serve as contemporaneous written acknowledgement? And the court in this case looked at that and said, okay, we, we, we've looked at the two cases, and we don't think those cases make the case that this separate document is going to qualify in this case. They said, first thing is, in both cases, we were dealing with just one document, not two. And that document was the deed, which by itself, either in one case, qualified as the full acknowledgement, and in the second case, failed to do so. Okay? But the question was, was the deed itself a full acknowledgement? That is not the case here. The court then also went on to say, and we don't believe the two documents can be combined first thing is the second document does not have any reference to the first. The first document cannot be the acknowledgement because no gift had been made at that point. The second document is the only one that could be an acknowledgement because it came after. And because it makes no reference to, it could have incorporated the donor advised fund packet by reference, it appears in the advice of the court, but it didn't. And the IRS even said, yeah, you know, you you could basically have a merger clause in the letter that would say, yeah, and all the terms under those letters you did for this, and that could have had it. And then we would have argued over whatever else we wanted to. But the court said it didn't have that documented. The only acknowledgment you've got here never mentions this. There is nothing in here that directs anybody to the other document. There's nothing in here that incorporates it and tells us that it actually happened. So for that reason, you didn't get proper documentation. So even if we didn't have the problem of the assignment of income, you still would have lost the contribution because you didn't have proper acknowledgement. Now, the court said because of all this, we're not even going to deal with the questions about whether the appraisal was defective because it didn't have the taxpayer ID number and a couple of other things the IRS questioned. The court just said we're not going to talk about that one because, frankly, it doesn't matter. You know, at this point, none of that really matters in this case. Bottom line, you did not give away the entire asset, that would kill your contribution. And secondly, you didn't have the proper donor advised fund contemporaneous written acknowledgement document and they close by noting just like the main one on 170 f8 for 170 f18 you also cannot use the concept of you know basically being able to say well we substantially complied with the requirements right we did those sorts of issues they're saying that doesn't work here for the same reason that it doesn't work under 170 F-18. You have to absolutely follow the statute. The statute has this requirement. We can't say, ah, you came close. You did not have an acknowledgement in the form demanded by the statute. You have to be very, very careful with charitable contributions. And that's why I say we've seen a number of cases just in the past few weeks where taxpayers have blown it with a foot fault over not getting the proper acknowledgments in place this is another case and there are all kinds of odd special cases right we had a case about the car right we now have the case about donor advised funds you got to be very careful i think we get in trouble in this area honestly because the irs does not examine a lot of returns and a lot of people have gotten sloppy You know, it's charitable contributions. They're just sloppy. They gave it. There's no problem. We could prove it later. On any of the CWA, the Contemporary Written Acknowledgement Requirements, you can't fix it later. You have to have it right by the time the return's filed. And that's become a major problem. And a lot of people kind of ignore it because, well, the IRS never questions these things. The problem is that's not really the issue. Next up, let's talk about the case United States versus Ward, United States District Court of Alaska, Uh, case number 3, colon 21, CV 00056, also came out on the 6th of July. And this was a case of taxpayers who were attempting to uh, get relief from IRS collections. Now, this tax was actually assessed in 2002. Most of you are probably aware, right? From the date the tax excess is assessed, the IRS has 10 years to collect it or to reduce it to a judgment, right? So you'd think we're in 2022. This tax was assessed in 2002. The case was filed in 2021, right? The IRS tried to get the, you know, reduce it to judgment in 2021. Obviously, they're late, right? Well, here's the catch taxpayers who owe a lot of money to the irs by the time this was done it was a million dollars what we're fighting over right now with penalties interest and tax it didn't start at that level but you know what uh, daily compounding gets you way up really quick and you run this long it's pretty easy to get there they had filed essentially seven separate actions that told the statute they had filed in this case five different offer and compromise uh, you know, request to the IRS, and it asked for two due process hearings over the years. Uh, the, first, the first thing came in 2002, right after the, right after the assessment. The last offer and compromise filing was in 2015. So they've been doing that. Now, whenever you do an offer and compromise, what ends up happening is the, IRS is the IRS has to stop the collection activities during that time frame until they decide to accept or reject the offer. The IRS has two years, 24 months, to accept or reject it. Once they reject it, then 30 days after the rejection is issued, the IRS can start trying collections again. Now, because the IRS has to stop collections, the law provides that, you know, taxpayers would just keep filing forever, right, for the 10 years. So the law provides very simply that we're going to toll the statute. That 10 years period stopped, the clock stops running. Now when we talk about in this case, they totaled up 3,154 days of tolling under these seven different things that were filed, right? The IRS process did all those things now. They push it all the way out so their statute would not have closed until the last half of 21. The IRS filed suit in March of 21 to reduce the taxes to judgment. And therefore, that would allow them to continue collection activities. The taxpayers are fighting this. Now, the problem is how do the taxpayers fight this? Because mechanically, you add those days, you're there. Well, they need to get days out of the mix. So you got to give them credit for creativity. The taxpayers argued that many of their offers were improper on their face, okay? And that the IRS was. Only processing them to extend the time, you know, to push the statute back. Okay. Uh, the, The court didn't buy that very well. In fact, the court called the argument nonsensical and baseless. They're saying look, we had, there is no evidence whatsoever you can offer that the IRS was actually intending to push the dates back. There's nothing here that backs that up. Number two, they said, even if there was... They, well, they said number two, it's far more... The evidence indicates far more that you kept filing these things to just try to delay the inevitable that you're going to need debt to pay up on the tax. You were trying to delay collections as long as possible. These were delaying tactics you entered into. And so, you know, basically... That's you know that in and you got the benefit every time of collection activity stopping during the pendency of the consideration. The IRS never got close to the two-year time period they had to rule within rule on for any offer and compromise, and different people processed each of the offers. So there was no you know it had to be a you know agency-wide conspiracy against you, which we're not buying that either with no evidence. Um, if they were literally going to do that. But in regardless, there's nothing in the law that says, you know, you, you, in essence, you, you can get rid of these days. You decided voluntarily to file these actions, and you understand when you do so, the statute will be told. You cannot then use your own. In essence, you say, oh, yeah, but it was so totally blatantly wrong, and we, our stuff was so flaky that they never should have started doing anything on it. You can't use that for your own benefit. So court said, tough luck, guys, IRS, you're allowed to proceed with uh, in court. We're not going to throw this out. The statute has not told. Seems likely it will be reduced to judgment. Finally, let's talk about the case of Lovershell versus Commissioner Tax Court Summary Opinion 2022-12 that came out on July 12th. Now, this is a reasonable cause case for failing to report income on a return. The taxpayers in the year in question took two distributions from retirement plans: one for sixty thousand, one for two hundred thirty-eight thousand. Now, for whatever reason, it appears both were both were basically run through Fidelity, but one of the ten ninety-nine R's went to their their home. They relocated, went to their home in Florida. The other one went to an address in Washington D.C., which was a home they owned, but. You know, and it appears they had moved from it. So they relocated and became Florida residents. Okay, but nevertheless still had this. So we have this $238,000 1099-R went to the Washington, D.C. address, not their home in Florida. They say they don't recall receiving this document. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll take it from that point. Okay, we don't recall receiving this, right? And it wasn't reported on the return. The 60000 was, this wasn't. They got a CP2000 notice. Initially, ignored it. When the IRS started sending out the more threatening letters, they forwarded it on to their tax professional. The tax professional reviewed it, said, "Did you get this money?" And they said, "Yeah, I guess we got it." I wrote, "Yeah." It's like, well, it wasn't on the return. They said, "Oh, no, why well, you know, So apparently, yeah, didn't get the 1099. They're saying, "Oh, we didn't know about the 1099." So anyway, they agreed to pay the tax right away, but they asked for relief from the penalty, stating that they should have reasonable cause for failing to report this because the taxpayer, you know, in essence, you know, the 1099 went to the wrong address. Now, the penalty in question here is the 6662A penalty, which is, and a 6662A is just your accuracy-related penalty, 20%. But the specific one here, because of the size of the distribution, uh, was the substantial understatement of income tax rules, which basically says you have a substantial understatement of income tax under section 6662b2, and it's defined by 6662d, if you have an understatement that exceeds the greater of 10% of the tax required to be shown in the return for the taxable year or $5,000, their understatement well above those limits. Uh, and just for those who might remember this or should be reminded of it, if you report any QBI deduction, that 10% goes to 5%, which is kind of an interesting problem, but that, that's okay. Now, the taxpayers said, yeah, we should have reasonable cause, you know, because we had reasonable cause, and you can get out of it under 664C1 allows you to get out if you had reasonable cause for the portion and you acted in good faith. Now, generally, Acting in good faith, have a reasonable cause, is did the taxpayer make an honest effort to determine the proper amount of their tax liability? And that's going to be the question in this case. Did they do that? You know, did they make an honest attempt to get this right? And the court said, well, you know, merely not getting an information return is not by itself sufficient. The regulations tell us that under 6664. However, you know, if in good faith you just weren't aware of it, etc., yeah, that's fine. But the court said in this case, we don't find it's reasonable. And it's based on the circumstances. First thing is this taxpayer was in business, had, you know, had business activities, business tie They knew about the importance of records. Uh, including records on your, you know, on your accounts, things that could be taxable. I think the court had trouble believing that they didn't realize when they took the two hundred thirty-eight thousand dollars out that that was going to be something they had to pay tax on. And for that reason, they said it doesn't show that you exercise reasonable care if you somehow neglected to mention that you know, when dealing your return, or didn't notice that when you reviewed your return. The court noted as well, there's no evidence they reviewed the return when it came back from their preparer. Now, interestingly enough, the preparer represented the taxpayers here before the tax court. And that's going to come up with the second way you can try to get out of this. There is another way you can get out of this issue. And that is, you can argue that that you relied on the advice of a professional and acted on that advice and that's why there's the understatement of, you know of a competent professional now in this case the taxpayers tried to claim that that they had essentially at, you know they 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 paid this guy to take care of their return right take care of their entire return and because of that you know obviously it wasn't their fault the 238 wasn't put in there Well, the court noted uh, that first, you know, they really didn't say what they meant by what exactly did it mean you relied upon this guy. That's not telling me what exactly you did. Because in order to get proper reliance on a professional, you must show that you engaged the professional to get advice. You also had the professional, you engaged the professional for the advice. The professional was given all necessary information, was provided to the professional. And you acted on the advice. The court said there's no evidence presented here. It looks like all you really did was through what you thought was your information at this guy to prepare it. You had no engagement with preparation otherwise. And you didn't look at the return. Because I think the court not stated, but the obvious here is, had you looked at the return, you should have realized there was six figures worth of income missing from the return had you thought about what happened the prior year but it looks like you just signed it and just worried about do I get a refund sign the return and we're done with it so he said that's not there now the issue with having the preparer be the person who represented the clients before the tax court is a problem because in essence you know generally In order to have reliance on a tax professional, you have to demonstrate what you gave them. Now, if you have somebody representing the taxpayer, this is an attorney, or if you qualify, you've gone through the exam, a CPA or EA, representing the client in tax court, they cannot, under the ABA, basically, or I should say, not ABA, but under Rule 24G2A of the tax court, Counsel cannot represent a party at the trial if counsel is likely to be a necessary witness within the meaning of the ABA model rules of conduct, with narrow exceptions. Now, the court pointed this out to the taxpayers when they, you know, when basically when this case came up and said, Do you understand that? And the uh, taxpayers said that, well, this guy who's representing us, who is the preparer, is not likely to be a necessary witness, and he did not testify. As I said, the way we see most of these reasonable cause for relying on a professional play out is the preparer falls on their own sword and says, you know, the professional says, yep, I was engaged to do this. I was given all this information, and I told them, in this case, I told them specifically $238,000 did not have to be reported since they didn't get a 1099 for it. I doubt he would have testified to that, <laughs> which may mean this really wasn't a negative. Uh, but it is interesting because, I, you know, it, it's kind of, you know, you're basically, you're operating with your hands tied behind your back. Uh, if, if your preparer can't testify and you're trying to say that, you know, we relied on the preparer. My guess is kind of knew that wasn't going to go anywhere. That could be a very real reason why this came up. But it is something to remember whenever you do have an IRS exam come up and there are proposed assessments. um, There is a potential conflict of interest problem because you as a preparer, you know, and this is one of the best defenses against the penalties. You have to watch out for conflict. And sometimes if it does appear that your advice is at issue or whether you gave advice is at issue, you probably need to pull back from representing the client and have another party step in. By the way, that other party will absolutely use reliance on you. There's no question. And unfortunately, that's kind of why it's a conflict of interest because everybody knows that we would do you do that automatically on your own. So they couldn't show reliance on a professional. So, stuck with that. So this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of July the 18th, 2022. As always, brought to you by your state society and Capital Financial Education. You can follow us online. I should say you can you can go online uh, and read our read our articles at CurrentFederalTaxDevelopments.com. We post them. You also could go ahead. And, you know, if you're a member of societies in Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, Right. Or Washington. And you can go on to their connect site. You can post uh, questions there. And if I see a question come up, I will I will probably take a look at an answer. That's also true on Idaho's. They don't use connect, but they have a similar discussion. I look there. Uh, keep there. Also, you can email me Ed Zollers at current tax developments uh, Like I said, it's been interesting. Some we haven't had a whole lot happen, but it's been interesting. Uh, we'll see what comes on for next week. Uh, any new developments, and we'll see you back here for more current federal tax developments.